the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Welcome again to the podcast. Welcome back, everybody. How you doing, Lindsay? Oh, you know, I'm uh, I'm doing okay. This pandemic thing's getting a little old, but I can tell you, watching this movie uh, I have been for this this episode has lifted my spirits right up. Yeah, this was really uh, has been a great two weeks uh, preparing for this episode. Like, <laughs> what I really needed was like a, just a ton of Jim Carrey movies, and, <laughs> and I did watch a ton of them. Yeah. It's really easy to get sucked in. The man is just a powerhouse of entertainment. And the movie we're talking about this week is Ace Ventura, Pet Detective. The one that started it all for Jim Carrey. Blew up his career. It seemed like the appropriate movie to discuss when discussing Jim Carrey because it it really is, like you said, the movie that kind of just like skyrocketed his career. And more specifically, the year 1994, which we'll get into in this episode uh, where Jim Carrey released not one, not two, but three movies that, uh, you know, really hit it big at the box office and made him like an international star, not overnight, but over the course of an entire year. Yeah, just really crazy. And um, as far as topics with Ace, there's a fair amount to discuss with this. I mean, the whole origin story, where the story came from and the writing behind it, how Jim Carrey came to be involved and uh, director Tom Shadiak, all that is pretty fun to go into. I think there's a good discussion here talking about the director and just a director directing a comedy because sometimes uh, I think uh, for comedies the the direction can sometimes go like unnoticed or or, or un, unappreciated. In this in this movie, Tom Shadiak had like a, a he was a big part of of the success of making the movie so funny, not just Jim Carrey. Oh yeah. Also, some cultural effects that happened after the fact. I'm sure that anyone that grew up with this knows knows what I'm talking about. There was definitely some controversy when the movie came out. If you remember the movie or if you're watching it in 2020, um, we can all agree that the ending or what leads <laughs> up to the end of this movie comes off pretty offensive. So we'll talk a little bit about that. And then uh, after our discussion on Ace, we'll get into our picks of the week. And because we're kind of like making this entire episode, the, the 1994 year that Jim Carrey hit it big, um, we're going to stick with that theme for our picks of the week. And so I, I took uh, Dumb and Dumber, which was the last movie of this these three big movies that came out in Jim Carrey's career. And I took the one that came after Ace Ventura, which was The Mask. All of these movies I've watched multiple times in these two weeks. And I can say, man, they never get old, any of them, like still today. Even with, you know, some humor that doesn't really fly maybe the same way it did in 94, you know, it was, that was 94. A lot of things have changed, thankfully, in humor, you know, but it it still appeals to some maybe, I think, nostalgic part of me that is still going to make me laugh. And of course, always we'll round things out with our Murray moment. And I'm very curious what you're going to do for this episode because, you know, (laughs) we've got uh, one of the biggest comedians of the 80s, you know going to be in somewhat related to one of the biggest comedians of the 90s so i'm curious how you you're going to work that in 
Oh, man. I know. You never know. It could be something direct. It could I, be something completely indirect. I don't know. And I really do never know up to, you know, <laughs> we've been doing this for over two years now, and I still have no clue what you're going to say for the Murray moment until you say it into the microphone while we're recording the episode. I can honestly say that this Murray moment, like my my head was like that little emoji of like the brain exploding when I when I found it. So, um, you know. Well, we'll see. We'll see. But I, I also will say there were a few avenues that I could have taken with this Murray moment. You know, it's all stuff for future, but it's landed on one. I always I always look forward to it. Good. <laughs> well, before we get into our first clip from Ace, which is going to be strange doing a clip from this movie because, it's <laughs> you know, Jim Carrey's such a visual actor. But we'll see what, what, what I can find for clips. Can you give us a little bit of a lowdown on, you know, who is Ace Ventura? What's this movie about? All right, so Ace Ventura, Pet Detective. When the mascot for the Miami Dolphins football team goes missing, an unorthodox private investigator specializing in pet detection is hired to solve the crime. After immersing himself in the case and the Dolphins quarterback is kidnapped, Ace Ventura finds himself in the middle of a very twisted tale of revenge. Makes the movie sound so exciting. Like, outside (laughs) (laughs) outside of being a comedy. (laughs) You know... I mean, this movie is so much more, uh, it, it is really, a, it's a mystery. It's a yeah. detective story, but the, the comedy involved is unlike any other detective story. Yeah. Well, we'll go to our first clip from Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, and then we'll come back. We'll start talking about this uh, Jim Carrey favorite of ours. All righty then. Roger Pedactor didn't commit suicide. He was murdered. Well, that's a very entertaining story, but unfortunately, real detectives have to worry about that little thing called evidence. Uh-oh. I think I heard a toilet flush. <laughs> Maybe somebody lost a turtle. <laughs> well, I guess I'm a little out of my league here. Einhorn, good work. Oh, there is just one more thing, Lieutenant. This woman is Roger Pedactor's neighbor. She lives across the hall. She said she heard a scream. Is that right, ma'am? Right. And you said you had to open the balcony door when you keyed into the room? That's true. You're certain you had to open this door? Yeah, I'm certain. What's the point, Ventura? Only this. is double pane soundproof glass. There's no way that neighbor could have heard Pedactor scream on the way down with that door shut. The scream she heard came from inside this apartment before he was thrown over the balcony and the murderer closed the door before he left. Yes! Yes! Oh, yeah! Can you feel that, buddy? Huh? 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 I have exercised the demons. This house it's clear. Losers? Get him out of here! Losers! Let's go, Ace. Losers. Now, though 1994 was just a universally big year for Jim Carrey and he became a household name, it's easy to forget that uh, this wasn't just like an overnight thing. Jim Carrey had paid his dues for more than a decade on the comedy circuit 
as a stand-up comedian and had really been working toward this goal for quite some time. And I mean, he was, you know, known to many, many people in, in the comedy world as a really funny stand-up comedian, had, you know, worked many venues, uh, done even a lot of television and film. You know, it wasn't just like this overnight thing that it that it seemed to be. No, it certainly wasn't. Um, in fact, at age 15, his dad was encouraging Jim to do stand-up and pushed him and pushed him to do this uh, stand-up routine that they wrote together. And the first one didn't go over so well, and Jim got booed off stage. Uh, so he kind of, you know, put it off for another two years. He just felt embarrassed and like he just couldn't do it anymore. It didn't stop him from being the jokester in his normal life and around his family and friends that he always was. But it wasn't until 17 when he gave it a go again. And it was just kind of immediate. He started off with his impressions and pretty much hit the ground running. And so all he needed was another jump start to get going. And at 17, the kid's taken off. And I think it was around 19 when, like 18, 19, when Rodney Dangerfield noticed him and was like, who's this kid? Are you kidding me? This kid's amazing. And picks him up to be his opener, which is just nuts for like a, a couple a couple days on his comedy tour. So at 19... Um, Jim Carrey moves to L.A. And at this point, I think he's got about like 150 impressions under his belt, which is just nutty. Like how he'd been doing this all his life. But to me, 115 impressions is just crazy. So he soon after debuts on The Tonight Show and in 83 lands a very, very short lived a show called The Duck Factory. He's actually playing the straight, like straight character, not kind of like the overall comedian that we know today. And I think a lot of people that saw that or friends that saw it felt like he was underused and just wasn't, you know, it wasn't playing to his strengths. So at this point, he's living in L.A. and a struggling actor, struggling comedian gets his parents, wants his parents to come live with him and gets him to move out to L.A. to stay with him thinking that he's doing, you know, he's coming up in the world. Soon after that happens, the Duck Factory gets canceled. He kind of sinks into a depression, and his mom gets sick, and he kind of refocuses his idea of being in L.A. and doing what he wants to do to auditioning and for movies, not necessarily hanging up his comedy spurs, but trying to make money because now he's got his parents living with him. So he does land Once Bitten, which was a pick pick of the week for me many episodes ago. Um, If you remember that movie, it's pretty close to my heart. So he lands Once Bitten. Um, Also during this time, he's um, realizing that it's hard enough for him to continue on with what he's doing or trying to do and trying to make money and trying to you know, get ahead. Um, and so his parents actually go back to Canada. And I think that kind of crushed him a little bit that he wasn't able to make that happen. But it did give him more time to focus on auditioning. So after Once Bitten, I think you might be familiar with or some people might be familiar with uh, Peggy Sue Got Married that he did in 87 with Kathleen Turner and Nicolas Cage. Um, a little bit later, he did the Deadpool with it was a small role in the Deadpool with Clint Eastwood and Clint Eastwood recognized him or wanted him in that movie because of Jim Carrey's impression that he'd been doing his entire life of him which is just adorable so not only was he auditioning for movies but he really was staying up in the comedy circuit and this is also where he started writing with Judd Apatow and they became friends 
and also became friends with Nicolas Cage. I found out that they're like lifelong friends now too. And then next was Earth Girls Are Easy, and that also starred Damon Wayans. And Damon Wayans introduced Jim to his brother, Keenan Ivory Wayans, who was the creator behind In Living Color. And that kind of is where Jim's life forever changed. Like, he had made all of these movies and supporting roles, but In Living Color was, I mean, that that show was right up his alley. Keenan Ivory Wayans was really trying to push the envelope didn't really care what people thought and wanted a token white guy for the show. And Jim Carrey couldn't have been more perfect for that show. I was still a kid, but I remember being into In Living Color. And then he did this TV movie that Fox played called Doing Time on Maple Drive. And he plays like the alcoholic deadbeat brother. Whoa. (laughs) And um, I remember thinking like, whoa, this guy's like totally like, that's because I, I was thinking like, oh, you know, it's got the guy from Living Color in it, and he just played like such a different character. He was always trying to do different things, and he was really knew that he was really good at a certain vein of comedy, you know, and was really trying to branch out and didn't want to get pigeonholed. But he always was such a solid comedian. Yeah, so that brings us to the early makings of of Ace Ventura. Of Ace Ventura. I keep saying Ventura. I don't know why. I keep saying Ventura too. So Carrie's becoming a name in the industry at this point. But what you might not know, because Jim Carrey is just stamped all over Ace Ventura. He is that character. Um, He didn't come up with, you know, the original idea for the story. The script existed, uh, was written by Jack Bernstein, and uh, was given to Morgan Creek productions and it actually been around a good like three four years prior to the movie coming out so it had been in that development hell thing that happens with so many scripts that just there's something missing or something lacking and just never really gets off the ground so morgan creek contacted tom shadiak with the idea to do a rewrite in in hopes that he would want to also direct it but really you know they they wanted to get this script up and working. So Shadiac asked for like every draft that had been done of Ace Ventura. So he reads it and pretty much soon into it, you know, he realizes a couple, a couple problems and he has solutions for them. And I don't think I'm going to ruin anything by telling you, <laughs> telling you things. You've probably seen this movie. If you haven't, we're going to ruin a lot of things in this by, by talking about stuff that happens in the plot. But the two main problems that he found were originally uh, Lieutenant Einhorn, that's played by Sean Young, uh, is not the was not the the villain or the bad guy, and he thought that that's the most obvious thing is that Einhorn needs to be the bad guy, and um, originally Einhorn was the sister of of Ray Finkel, the kicker that missed the field goal and set off this whole plan of revenge. I couldn't find who Fred Eugene is, but um, Fred Eugene is, is the person who's credited with coming up with the idea of making Lois Einhorn and Ray Finkel the same person and combining that brother sister aspect to just make it one person. And in the spirit of trying to make a story more interesting and, you know, twisty, turny detective idea, I mean, it, it's not that bad of an idea. It's pretty It's pretty good. And if you've not seen this movie, you're not going to be expecting that at all. 
So with this new rewrite idea that Tom Shadiak had kind of made the script way more solid, Morgan Creek was happy with it. They started thinking about casting. And ideally, if you can believe it, Rick Moranis was uh, one of the top contenders for this. And Ace Ventura was supposed to be a little bit more bumbling in the beginning, like your typical kind of dumb detective type of story. And they were thinking, you know, Rick Moranis, this needed to be, they called it, they wanted it to be the Fletch of the 90s. So if you're thinking Chevy Chase, you kind of know where the original idea behind Ace was. Um, and if this was a Chevy Chase movie, man, I, um, I'm really glad it wasn't yeah. not saying I'm not a fan of Chevy Chase movies, just saying the way that Ace exists now, it couldn't be further away from, from that. If you think of Chevy Chase, 1994, think, uh, cops and Robertson's error of Chevy Chase and you, you Ace Ventura could have been an easily a forgettable nineties movie. I think if Chevy Chase had done it at that point in his career. Yeah. Yeah, completely. I mean, just anything like having the script be that being being just like this kind of bumbling, dumb detective that just happens into something instead of what Ace ended up being. And the reason that Ace ended up the way that it is today is is directly because of Jim Carrey. So Morgan Creek uh, is aware of Jim Carrey because of In Living Color. They enlist him to come in and help Tom Shadiak do another rewrite on the script, see what he can add in because they're very aware of his comedy styling and writing. And so Jim and Tom are working together and I guess like their partnership just really like it just really clicked because it seemed like they were just cracking each other up left and right. Yeah. I think like it was uh, the working relationship between Tom Shadiak and Jim Carrey on aces. The, like you said, how it was written, with like a Rick Moranis in mind that, you know, that's who they were going for with this idea of like Fletch of the nineties. And I, I know it was like during when Jim Carrey entered the picture, when they were rehearsing, he was kind of Jim Carrey was doing it in like a more of like a Chevy chase kind of way. And Shadyac was like, Oh, it seems like really dry. And like, I don't know. It just doesn't seem like unique in Tom Shadiak remembered how Jim Carrey would do his stand-up and he would come out and say, set up the audience by doing this voice like, you know, these are the jokes and all righty then, let's get started. And as soon as he mentioned that to Jim Carrey, like, you know, maybe that could be the personality of Ace. He said it just sparked like this like light bulb and Jim Carrey immediately, you know, they kind of just started reworking the script and the movie in, in that tone, you know, the sort of like more even more like confident and, you know, over the top character. I think that's the biggest thing is that Ace all of a sudden became extremely confident and, you know, arrogant in some ways, but it's just more about confidence and being assured, even though he is a complete goofball. So keeping that goofball aspect to it, but having him knowing exactly what he's doing, he's not a dumb detective. He actually knows everything that he's talking about yeah it seemed like this ended up being a dream project basically for jim carrey and he could do he his life to this point had been working up to doing these impressions that are all throughout this movie i don't know how many um like spoofs are done or how many people are imitated um in this movie but it's like it, it's it's a never-ending list of movies you know whether it's jaws or the love boat or star trek I mean, he's he's a Columbo is what he is, you know. So this takes us basically to where we are and where the production starts after after they realize what the keys were to unlocking uh, Ace 
the script, that's where it all took off. And this this was definitely like a very tight shoot. I think it was something like, you know, they did something like two months of shooting. They were moving really fast, and the budget certainly wasn't huge. I mean, it wasn't like low budget, but they, uh, I think it was like the entire time both Jim Carrey and Shadyac were like, this is just going to be the movie that like ends our career because <laughs> they thought it was funny, but it was just so different. And I, I even remember when this movie came out thinking like, man, this is just kind of like a different kind of style of comedy. You know, it was, it was really fresh and, and I think, you know, kind of hip for the time. And a lot of it's very juvenile and like played like gangbusters to like, you know, kids my age. And it it did. Yeah. There's something about it. And I, I understand obviously like why the type of humor appeals to kids. I mean, a grown man talking out of, out of his butt, you know, but the way that Jim Carrey does it and it's just as constantly pushing the envelope. Also, when you have a comedian doing this, that he is unrelenting like the entire time he's always on level 17 and everyone around him. And I think this is a key factor to the story that all of the actors around him are very straight. They're all very even, you know, except for the main villain who does have her her moments of, you know, rage. But that's not really until, you know, the end. But having your main character be so far out there and everyone just straight acting, it's uh, it's only going to amp up the comedy of the movie. What I think that's great about Ace Ventura with it being not just a Jim Carrey vehicle, but like a, a comedy in of itself. And if you're a fan of Jim Carrey, you like Jim Carrey, if he doesn't annoy you, that alone, his performance in Ace, his over-the-top, just zany, you know, sort of like almost like human cartoon is fun to watch just without ever everything else. But this movie, you know, has a, a very ABCD beginning, middle, and end type story arc. So it has that going for it. You know, they they tried to create something a little bit unique, like what is a pet detective? It is actually (laughs) a real thing, but like that's not something that world I think most people knew anything about. But I what I love about this movie is that you it's constantly, if not funny, entertaining. And that's not something you can say about a ton of comedies, you know, a ton of comedies like live and die by the comedian or the setups. And I love that this movie does have traditional setups, but they also have like Jim Carrey acting really crazy, but then they also make him like really smart at times. So there's humor in that. And then there's also people reacting to him while simultaneously doing a setup. Like, for instance, the scene where he first is meet his first meeting with Courtney Cox when she's kind of interviewing him to possibly take the case to find uh, Snowflake the dolphin that's gone missing he takes out these sunflower seeds because she's showing him a video of Snowflake to get him seen. Okay, this is the this is the victim. This was the the dolphin that got kidnapped. And while he's watching it, he breaks open these sunflower seeds and he's kind of like grossly eating them and like <laughs> putting the seed, you know, the the shells on the table and like sucking on them. And Courtney, it's it's hard, you know. So it's funny because we're watching him do that. That's funny. The reaction of Courtney Cox is also funny because it's kind of she's kind of just disgusted by it and off putting them. Finally, she's like, "Do you need an ashtray?" And he's like, "He's like, no, no, I, I don't smoke. It's it's a disgusting habit, you know." And so <laughs> the setup is all for that joke, and it and it just hits really hard. But we're already laughing up until that point, so I think that's why it, this is just like the key to great comedy is you know the jokes are there in the script, their setups there in the script, but Jim Carrey's just like being funny the entire time too, and then you have. Like you said, 
the the straight performer who's playing off of him and not doing anything funny they're just reacting to his craziness you know and and that's the thing is like in the movie he you know people react to him as like this guy is bizarre this guy is out there you know it's it's not like just something that the audience is seeing it's something that even though he does these things that are like otherworldly like catching bullets in his teeth the characters who are in the movie know that ace is just as outrageous as he's appearing to us as the audience watching Oh, yeah, completely. And that doesn't mean to say that this isn't a well thought out detective story. You're already kind of, you know, teetering uh, on not being believable when you say pet detective or something that's going to spark a laughter, you know, but pet detectives are still a thing, were a thing then. But, you know, you risk losing the audience if you have anything that isn't believable in a detective type story. So that we have this easy kind of setup, like you said, you know, point A to B to C, D, um, that you have that. And, and the story is really well thought out. It's not like they just were like, here, Jim Carrey, go ahead and do this. Just do your wacky impressions. We're going to actually give you a good story to work with. You're going to work around this story and always kind of come back to it, whether you're improving lines here. And there is a great deal of improv in this movie, or you're going to do straight up physical comedy, whatever it is, Jim Carrey always has the script in mind. And maybe, you know, maybe that is just him. Maybe that was because he helped write the script. Who knows, actually, like why why that is. But it just blends so well together that it doesn't feel that the slapstick comedy that's in it sticks out as just like joke after joke after joke. Um, it does feel like a cohesive movie that, that just like fits together. You know, after watching... Ace several times and Liar Liar especially where him and Shadyac work together I, I know in Shadyac talking about Ace he said you know Jim Carrey would move to darker comedy in Ace and, and he kind of you know would say you know is this getting too dark for an audience we don't want to take Ace into a dark place and so Shadyac did cut some darker moments you know setups and gags out of Ace Ventura I do wonder because Jim Carrey went so much darker later with the cable guy and at that time, you know, I don't know that someone could have told Jim Carrey, like, hey, we think you should do it this way. He's probably like, you know, I'm getting paid $20 million. Let me, just, <laughs> let me just do what I do. You know, like this movie's a Jim Carrey movie. So it's kind of interesting to see that, you know, just that two year difference between something because I because I would say like, you know, Ace Ventura is probably like the the least dark comedy that, that Jim Carrey did versus like how he, you know, I feel like a lot of his comedy stuff kind of like went to the darker side, which I don't mind. I mean, Cable Guy to me personally is my favorite Jim Carrey comedy. It was like when we first started this podcast, that was one of my early picks of the week. But I do appreciate also just the manic energy of, of Ace Vin, Ventura and also how, you know, it is it is a light comedy. He does lean towards characters that have some type of, you know, they, they stick out. Their personality completely sticks out. And they have this idea that they're completely in control of their life or of themselves, even if they're a complete whack job. You know, whether it's Cable Guy or Ace Ventura, they're kind of different. They're variations of this character that, that seem like they're in control and that are in control in a lot of ways, but they're also completely out there. The, the way his his cadence and his voice style still seems really fresh to me. It's just like people weren't doing that. And the way he would like break up his words and like kind of pa do the pauses. It's just it's very much like 
his own style his you know this is like 100% like oh this is Jim Carrey you know the same way Adam Sandler has his sort of like little voices and things that he does those little stammers it's like 100% him and and that's what I really appreciate this it's like Jim Carrey doesn't really seem like one of those comics who grew up like worshiping this comic and this comic this comic and like pulled from all of them it was just like I don't know it was like his own thing right away yeah and talking about how like where his comedy came from and that he was so good at impressions but that he wanted to, he knew that he could do something beyond that. And and having the ability to improv or train himself how to do improv just shows that there was this little creative genius that was being brewed in the, uh, you know, early 80s. He had written things before this, but if this is like your first feature that you're helping write on and you completely change the plot, you know, like you have for the better, and it's not just you know, making this movie all about yourself. I think the movie was always all about Ace. But when you're playing to your strengths and know how to take these eccentric antics and this absurdity, but meld it into a real story, I mean, that takes talent. And there are like a few times when we do have, there are some dark moments in Ace Ventura and there are some real moments that Ace has as, as a character where it's almost like he breaks character a little bit, maybe like yeah. three or four times. And it makes you feel like there's maybe something beneath that that, you know, we don't really know about Ace. But if we were to go into that part of Ace, this would be a whole different style of movie. I, I like that we get these few sprinkles that, that show that of him. But I also appreciate that we don't go further into that because it would change the entire tone of the movie. And that's another thing I, I, I appreciate about a movie like this is that if you think about Ace in like realistic terms, it's like, what does a guy like that do when he's by himself all day long? You know I mean? <laughs> we only have this like one kind of funny scene where he's home by himself and you see all the animals and everything, which is like so over the top, you know, they're like hiding yeah. and then he calls them all out. But like, he's such a zany character. It's just like, this is a movie where you can't possibly have this guy home alone and showing like what he does in his free time. You know, you have to just yeah. constantly have him like interacting with people and having this like adventure happening because you can't have, you can't show the real side of that character, like as a human solo human being. But like you said, there are these moments where he, you know, he kind of breaks this sort of like macho exterior that he has when he's talking to Courtney Cox and like caring about somebody caring about how someone's feeling about something. And that said his only, I mean, let's face it, his only humanity um, really in this movie is, is his love for animals and although um, Stan, my dog, is always my test for this, watching this movie with Stan, he was actually fine. And it dawned on me, now watching Ace Ventura When Nature Calls, Stan was not fine with that one. That's because the sequel has a lot more animals in it than the first one does. Now, the the, the scenes where animals are in, in the original Ace Ventura, really, they're appropriate. It seems it, it keeps you remembering the fact that he is a pet detective because he's searching for this dolphin that you don't see, you know, so it, it is more of a detective story and showing him in his home setting, especially when he's uh, figuring out who the real killer is or who the mastermind behind the kidnapping is. That whole scene like makes me laugh like nothing else. But quick tidbit, though, that uh, scene that you brought up before where he calls all of his animals out and it turns into the you know, St. Francis of Assisi's, basically. Um, that thing, that that whole shot 
took three months to put together of having all of those animals trained to come out. And any scene with all of the animals that live in his apartment is pretty wacky. And I, I feel like I'm about three animals away from being Ace Ventura, actually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, the last thing I kind of wanted to close on this before we go into the next uh, clip is, you know, it was kind of wild to me to find out how unsure Jim Carrey was about how this movie was going to be perceived even after you know they had completed it made the cast laugh you know all agreed that it was a funny movie had some test screenings that like played really well like kids were sneaking into the second third screening even though you're only supposed to watch a test screening once that when the movie was premiering Jim Carrey was like kind of you know his nerves were rattled and he just didn't know if people were going to respond to this as like actually funny and it's wild for me to think that, but at the same time, I always, with comedy, it's like so subjective, you know, and I just like stuff that will make people fall over and, and laughter will just annoy the shit out of somebody else. So it's <laughs> like, I can understand that him feeling that, but it's still wild to me that he was just so uncertain that people were going to think this was really funny. I mean, he had to have known that it was, I mean, he knew that it was completely out there. And I think when people saw this initially, People knew that it was it was something that hadn't been done before. Yeah. That the 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 type of comedy that was happening, just stuff that you hadn't seen on film. And I think that the, one of the best examples of that is um what do you call when when he's pretending to be soon to be mental patient to go into the Shady Acres home and he's you know being a quote unquote crazy person in a tutu. And he does a scene where he does it all in reverse and does his dialogue in reverse and does motions in reverse. And that entire thing, like I hadn't seen that in a movie before. I don't recall something else, you know, it's just so over the top and just things that you hadn't seen. I could totally understand why he would be really scared (laughs) on if it was going to be good or not. Yeah, this was like a new kind of animal, and I think uh, really kind of really opened up the doors to more just sort of like outrageous comedies, um, especially many more for Jim Carrey. Well, let's stop there. Uh, We'll get into our next clip from Ace Ventura, Pet Detective. And then when we get back, we will discuss director Tom Shadyac, some of the cast. We'll get into a little bit of the controversy with the end of Ace Ventura that we talked about in the intro, and also talk about that uh, zany, crazy sequel uh, when nature calls. <laughs> Sounds good. We'll be right back. Ventura, when I get out of that bathroom, you better be gone. Is it number one or number two? I just want to know how much time I have. Hey, uh, by the way, I went ahead and solved that pesky snowflake pedactor Moreno thing. Oh, yeah? Yeah, you ever heard of a former dolphin kicker named Ray Finkel? All right, Ventura. Make it quick. I found a rare stone at the bottom of Snowflake's tank. It belongs to a Dolphin 84 AFC Championship ring. It would have been a Super Bowl ring, but Ray Finkel missed the big kick. Blames the whole thing on Marino. We're talking paranoid delusional psychosis. I saw the guy's room. It's cozy if you're Hannibal Lecter. So how does Roger Pedactor fit in? My guess is Finkel was snooping around, Pedactor recognized him. End of story. As for Snowflake, they gave him Finkel's number, taught him how to kick a field goal. Finkel took it personally. So where is Finkel now? Busted out of a mental institute, did a Claude Rains. He's been plotting his revenge for years, waiting for the perfect time to get back at the Dolphins, the time when it would hurt them the most. Super Bowl time. 
Man, I'm tired of being right. Congratulations. You've done some fine detective work. Ace. I'm sorry, could you speak into my good ear? I thought I heard you call me Ace. Maybe I was wrong about you. Maybe you are more than just a pet dick. So, Lindsay, you talked a lot about uh, the early makings of Jim Carrey. So I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the Shadyac. That Shadyac, that Tom Shadyac director. It's like, that, it's crazy that's a real name. But. Yeah. <laughs> uh, tidbit uh, for you Ace fans, uh, the Shady Acres mental hospital in, in the film is Tom Shadyac's last name. Shadyac, Shady yeah. Acres. There's a nice little like plug there, little Easter egg. Yeah, it's pretty cute. Listening to Tom Shadyac talk about Ace Ventura and just in general about life, he just seems like such an intelligent, well thought out guy. You know, much like Jim Carrey, he had been working for, you know, nearly 10 years prior to the success of Ace Ventura. And just like Jim Carrey catapulted his career, Tom Shadyac said that uh, it was really like, so hard for him he wanted to be a director and it was so hard for him to get any kind of jobs and he said something like in within two days he got an offer from every studio something like 100 of the best comedy scripts that were available in Hollywood and he certainly made a good choice I mean he you know stuck working with Jim Carrey in Liar Liar and Bruce Almighty but also right after the success of Ace Ventura directed Eddie Murphy in the hit uh, The Nutty Professor but his early makings, uh, you know, were, were stemmed in comedy. Uh, he started uh, in his early 20s as one of the youngest uh, comedy writers for Bob Hope. Eventually uh, went to college, got his master's degree from UCLA. Uh, and there he was, you know, making short films already, had a hit short film. He took a stab at acting and bit parts here and there. And it was around this time, started becoming familiar with Jim Carrey through Jim Carrey's work with In Living Color. As he as he got, you know, came across the Ace Ventura script and started working on the script, he, you know, remembered uh, Jim Carrey from In Living Color and thought that that would be a good pairing. Man, it, it's a really, not to get too far into it because it's not pertaining to Ace Ventura, but uh, Tom Shadyac had kind of like a wild post big Hollywood career. I mean, this guy, he was like a multimillionaire. I think he got paid something like 30 million after it was all said and done for Bruce Almighty. But, uh, he got into like a really terrible bicycle accident in 2007 and kind of like changed his life. Like he had like some severe head trauma from that and, you know, had a profound effect on him. Like he donated like tons of his money to charity, started living in a trailer, like living in a living in middle nowhere stopped working in hollywood like got away from the entertainment industry and then uh went on i haven't seen this documentary and after reading about this i really want to see it he wrote he made a documentary called i am where he went around and sort of like asked all these uh like philosophers and, and religious leaders and people all around the world about you know what's wrong with the world what's wrong with us as a society and kind of like questioning things in like a more global spiritual way and uh, supposedly it's like a really fascinating and interesting movie and certainly doesn't seem like something that you would uh, hear about coming from the guy who directed Ace Ventura, but um, it really made me fascinated to look into that. So it wasn't something that I got to see before uh, we started recording this episode, but um, I'm hoping to catch it uh, really, really soon. 
I really want to see that now, too, because I think that's, you know, on a global scale, that's a question that we all, you know, a lot of us have is, why is everything the way it is? I would love to see where he went with that. And that was that was made 10 years ago. I, I can't imagine how that would play to me right now in 2020. <laughs> yeah, right. The year of the just the worst shit ever. <laughs> I know. Uh, yeah, really. Maybe it'll be even more profound now. Yeah, um, that's what I just and, said. God. <laughs> and, you know, even though Ace Ace Ventura was Tom Shadyac's debut feature film, I really got to say I, I love what he brought to the film because it very much is coming from a writer's standpoint, or at least that's how it looks to me. Because if the director is the visual storyteller, it feels like it is very obvious and pointed that that's how he's telling the story. It's interesting to me, too, how how he chose shots. Like, a lot of these shots in the movie are either extreme close-ups or medium shots. There's, like, nothing, like, really expansive. Not that a comedy really lends itself to being that anyway. How he sets up scenes and, and uh, shoots it, it really seems like he is telling the story more than I've ever seen, like, with uh, with a lot of comedies, I guess I should say. Yeah, and it's like it seems too like Jim Carrey's such this uh, spontaneous and like physical actor. You know, I mean, I I imagine it might be difficult to like let's not shoot a bunch of coverage of this because he's not going to be able to do it the same. You know, especially if it's all coming yeah. spontaneous. Like better they capture him in a wide, and then maybe you know going for a couple close ups to for some reaction stuff or whatever, like back and forth. But you know, I think it's good that some of this stuff is shot more you know is a wide and we just see all of jim carrey you know the weird angle of him and doing the all the star trek mimicry and yeah i think that was a collaborative idea too with that that shot in particular that that was an idea that jim carrey had and shadyac was like yeah let's go with it the their working relationship i i love that it worked so well because it's really obvious on screen. To do a comedy, yeah, you know, it's just like to have that director and the comedian on the same page and say, you know, we both agree that this is what we should do and also to trust each other because, like, you know, I said earlier with Ace, they did go for some Jim Carrey one. They had some darker bits in there that Jim Carrey was a big fan of. Like there was a guy asking Ace for help and that he was going to, you know, shoot himself and then – Ace kind of like ignores him. And then later on in the background, he's like, had says like shot himself in the head and it's like, there's blood everywhere. And Shadyac was like, this is too dark. You know, we've got these background bits, but we're, we're going into like dark territory and to, for Jim Carrey to be like, okay, sure. You know, and Shadyac was known to, he said that his director's cut of Ace Ventura was probably the only director's cut you'll ever find out there that's shorter than the theatrical release because <laughs> he was just like, I only want, you know, I'm just, I'm cutting on beats here. I'm, I'm, I'm going for what I think is the funniest and everything else. Like we're just going to leave on the cutting room floor. And that's a director who is really working toward, you know, I want this to be a functioning story, but I also want all the comedy to hit just right and not go too long and not reuse bits so many times that they're, you know, they get stale and, yeah, I think that his working relationship with Jim Carrey like really produced some some good comedy and and really knowing constantly keep these like comedic bits to keep hitting in the right places. I think he said his his name was Shady Hack in the editing room. That's uh, what he came to be called for his uh, intense editing. That he would just be like, "Nope, that's going." And his reasoning for that was, you know, you have this 
crazy, crazy out of this world humor with Ace Ventura. And you have these other jokes in between that are that are working, but that are kind of, you know, mildly funny as compared to these constant. I mean, it's if, if you find this movie funny, you're pretty much laughing the whole time. And when you have the jokes that kind of work that are in there, it's going to play differently. So if you just have this always amped style of humor, the movie's going to be constantly funny and always on an on a upper level than if you were to bring the pace up and down, up and down. Yeah. So I, I got to respect his uh, his idea. And to be working around him on uh, Ace Ventura, I mean, you, you've got to be able to keep a straight face. I know Courtney Cox had a problem keeping a straight face in uh, her scenes with, with Jim Carrey. Also to make it realistic is like, bringing Dan Marino in, like having the movie center around his kidnapping and having the real Dan Marino, you know, yeah, playing for the sports team that he played for at the time. I mean, that's kind of genius in a way. And, and that wasn't, uh, that wasn't something that Dan Marino wanted to do. It took some convincing. And I think it's, it took Jim Carrey's like enthusiasm of, of showing up to meet him as the character of Ace and like at a restaurant and like acting all crazy like that. And how are, how are you going to say no to that? Yeah. You know? Cause he, I thought he did a good job in this, you know, just, yeah. Yeah. He's totally fine. And there's so many jokes made at his expense too. I mean, one, like the, the isotoners, you know, yeah. <laughs> like he did an isotoners commercial and they pull that out as something that, you know, uh, Ray Finkel had isotoner gloves as like one of his like, revenge things like that he was obsessed with dan marino and just ray finkel's entire room that was plastered with die dan die and all of these like voodoo things that dan marino kind of got a kick out of it and it's got to be kind of weird a little bit because you're playing yourself and then the point of this movie is someone has a vendetta and wants to kill you and there were various other real life football players in this movie too one of my favorite scenes actually involves all of some dolphin players at the time, which is the the montage over, I think it's an Aerosmith song, isn't it? I think so. Where Ace is trying to find the Super Bowl ring that has the missing stone that he found in uh, Snowflake the Dolphin's tank. That whole like montage of him checking, <laughs> checking various football players' rings in really ridiculous ways, including... One of my favorite things to see in a movie is chloroforming someone. I think it's always funny. The chloroforming scene is is up there. If not first, it's my second favorite scene in this movie. Oddly enough, the uh, the big name that, that Shadiac wanted to get, Shadiac knew that this movie would appeal to a younger audience, so they wanted to get someone that, that kids knew or that was popular with young people. And so at the time, Tone Loke was really well known as a a rapper, hip hop artist, also had been in a few movies already and a really identifiable voice, identifiable face. So he was at when this movie came out, he was like the most famous person in the movie. That's so funny. Like I I love Tone Loke. Definitely knew his songs around that time. Um but yeah, it's it's funny that you know, they were like we got to get Tone Loke for this. And that he's uh Aces even though he's pretty abused by ace um that he's his buddy cop on on the inside i i like that aspect of the story how is that guy always always sounded like such a mature man always yeah (laughs) i would have thought that he was older yeah because he sounded like he was like 50 when he was like in his 20s yeah he does a great job adding some comedy to this movie 
Um, and let's see. Quick shout out to Alice Drummond, Bill Zuckert, who play Ray Finkel's parents. Alice Drummond, man, that woman popping up in movies. You might know her, remember her face most as the librarian in the beginning of Ghostbusters. That's certainly what I know her the most from. But I think it was Awakenings was uh, the reason that Tom Shadiak wanted her was was because of Awakenings. But sweet little actress. Love that. Love that, Alice Drummond. So we mentioned her for a moment earlier, but there's Courtney Cox, who is nowadays one of the most uh, instantly recognizable faces. But back in 1994, Friends was just starting up around the same time they were filming Ace Ventura. And yeah, it's not like she was a stranger to movies or television. I remember her from being on Family Ties and kind of one-off episodes. I feel like I even remember her from an episode of Murder, She Wrote, but... Who wasn't on Murder, She Wrote, really. But Courtney Cox really does add a lot to Ace Ventura, kind of playing that straight character like we talk about how everyone in this movie really does that. But the way that she does it is in this sly way of playing something straight, but you see the sarcasm, judgment, and humor that's coming out of those like steel blue eyes (laughs) whenever she's dealing with Ace. And and there's also a lot of compassion and caring and in her character. And I, I don't know, I just really like what she brings to this. And it is interesting to see her in 94 in a supporting role. And while she has a, a prominent part in the movie, it's, you know, kind of nice to see such a big, you know, celebrity uh, nowadays being in the supporting role. Yeah. And probably the most obvious to round out the cast is Sean Young who plays the villain in this movie that is Lois Einhorn and Ray Finkel, who is the same person. And fun little tidbit is that uh, she was not the first pick for for this role. I guess they auditioned a lot of people. I mean, this is a character that is, for the most part, playing a woman, um, but does have some scenes where, or not scenes, but is photographed as um, her former male self. And Sean Young uh, was not the first pick, like I said, but um, Jim Carrey certainly fought for her. Uh, For some reason, was just very determined to have Sean Young in the movie. And I got to say, that's pretty awesome. That is awesome. And Sean Young, for this part, did do a little bit of research in observing um, people that she said had lost touch with reality. And You know, this kind of is going into the controversy, not controversy, but the offensiveness that um, can be understood when rewatching this movie 25 years. And even when it came out, um, it's not like it's all of a sudden offensive. It was offensive when it came out. But I, I think in like even just Sean Young saying she went to observe people that had lost touch with reality, that says to me that she's studying a character that is quote unquote crazy, right? This is the crazy person in the story. But it does, you know, go into some problematic areas um, with touching on homophobia and transphobia. I don't know. I've got a couple ideas on this. Justin, what what do you think? I mean, you really can't defend anything. If someone finds something offensive, there's really no, like, defending that, you know. Agreed. Agreed. But you can also look at a movie like Ace Ventura and I also think like a movie like Blazing Saddles and say there's no doubt it's there's offensive stuff in these in these movies. But... The humor at its core is not from a malicious place, you know, but people still laugh at 
things that are offensive. So it's it's always like I think it's like a, a tough thing with comedy, you know, and especially as as things age. And and certainly when this movie came out, I mean, Jim Carrey and 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 Shadyac were were not oblivious to this. I mean, they knew that it was going to offend people. They didn't think it was malicious, but they said some people are going to find this offensive for, for sure. Knowing that and still doing it also says that your intention is not malicious. And when you deal with a movie like Ace Ventura that is so exaggerated and so over the top and Ace is just a he's a cartoon person. He's not a, a real person, you know. And when you have someone uh, that's so fearless and catching bullets in their teeth and confident and macho and just he's not taking no for an answer type of guy. And then we have this extended scene of when he realizes that Lois Einhorn is Ray Finkel, you know, him making himself vomit in the toilet, plunging his face with a plunger. Like that's not, it's not like a real thing. You're not going to plunge your face with a plunger. Um, just these, like that is the thing that sends him over the edge. It's not all of these hair raising situations that, you know, he's yeah. put himself in. The idea behind it was going for the ridiculousness of, of that. And it was almost making fun of, of Ace being, homophobic more so than making fun of someone that was uh you know that's of another gender had transitioned and i do have one little thing i was i was really trying to like hone in on and thinking about this from way too serious of a standpoint that i really think you need to look at ace ventura as many times i i get the homophobic aspect um the the trans thing was interesting to me because the more i thought about it the more I realize that Lois Einhorn isn't trans. And I say that because, like, Ray Finkel, there's never any hint that we're given that, you know, in Ray Finkel's childhood, and we see his childhood home, he, you know, his true identity was always to uh, or be of a more feminine persuasion. And this movie's not shy about hinting towards things. There's a, there's a banana and two apples on Einhorn's desk in one scene. You know, like, we know what that's referencing or what that's right, foreshadowing. Yeah. So we could have planted, you know, dresses or something, you know, stereotypically feminine in, in Ray Finkel's childhood home, but that's not there. And when Ace, you know, unravels Einhorn's plan at, at the very end of the movie, I mean, he blatantly says Ray Finkel assumed the identity of this missing hiker that Lois Einhorn joined the police force to exact revenge on Dan Marino, who you know, she blamed for everything that had happened to her. So to me, if if we're going to be offended, I get the homophobia, I get it. But I think it's actually a little bit more offensive when it comes to like the idea of what a crazy person would do, you know, right? Um, not not to say that someone wouldn't do that. I'm not gonna. It probably has happened before someone assuming the identity, but the idea that someone would for 20 years pose as someone of another gender go into the police force all to get revenge on someone is just insane, you know? And that's what we're also trying to demonstrate, that Ray Finkel does have a few screws loose, and we also see that through his mom, Alice Drummond, yeah. who's not all, you know, there with reality. So in thinking about Ace in way too, you know... Right. <laughs> way too deep in what it should, and as far as it being offensive... Um, you know, I think that that is kind of something to be observed when you go back and you're like, oh, this is so cringeworthy. I'm not saying it's not cringeworthy. It is. 
if you're not familiar with this, you know, this scene that we're talking about where Lois Einhorn is exposed and everyone on the police force and Dan Marino and and everyone starts like scratching their tongue and like vomiting and it's um it's really exaggerated and over the top the same thing basically mimicking the same thing that that Ace does to himself when he realizes this but if you look if you look closely there's also a woman there's also a police officer who's react I did, I did. <laughs> and that to me that had me cracking up harder because if she's reacting that way, that means that she's a lesbian and she's grossed out that she was kissing a man. And that to me, like played on a whole other, it, it just, it just meant to me that they're not trying to be malicious and yeah. being offensive. They're just going for completely ridiculous, you know? And, and I'm not saying like be offended. I get it. I, I, I get why it is, but it would also be silly of us to not talk about a movie like this that does have so much merit to it. Um, because of of something like this that is included in it. Because if anything, in 1994, this was some type of you know visibility. Like like LGBTQ people were not really anywhere. Uh, I mean, they were, but they were always the you know killer, the crazy person, or yeah. the victim. And here, that is an example of that. So if anything, it's you know Ace is. Um, you know, can be thrown in with this group, but it is interesting from a historical point of view to at least take note of that. Yeah, totally. Well, let's uh, let's stop there. We'll come back for some final thoughts on Ace Ventura, but let's move on to our picks of the week. Which all also came out of 94. Uh, just a crazy time, really, for, for uh, Jim Carrey. He was, I think, during Ace, he was going through a divorce, and you're going through a divorce and you're becoming soon to be one of the most famous people in the entire world. I just can't imagine that life. Well, you tackled the second film after Ace Ventura and that was the mask. What can you, what can you tell me about the mask? So like Ace Ventura upon this rewatch, I found myself knowing lines even before they happened. Apparently I've really suppressed how much Jim Carrey influenced me as a 12 year old. The Mask is truly wacky. It's a live-action Looney Tunes cartoon come to life. On the heels of Ace Ventura, kids were already primed to be into Jim Carrey, and The Mask offered up a toned-down, not-too-cringy adult humor and playfulness, but amped up the wacky factor while combining just enough actual narrative to keep parents interested. So Jim Carrey plays Stanley Ipkiss, a bank teller who's your, you know, typical nice guy, not boring or uninteresting. He just lacks confidence. The exact opposite of Ace Ventura. Stanley spends his days being a sweetheart, martyr, a.k.a. a doormat. A character like this is an easy target for something big to happen to. In fact, we want this guy's life to change, whether he ends up Superman like a mousy Clark Kent or an avenging bad guy. Either way, Buddy's got to change the trajectory of his life. So after a bummer letdown of a night, Stanley finds himself with this mysterious mask that he comes upon. He takes it home and puts it on, as any curious person would, and proceeds to be turned into the extreme version of himself. A lovesick, wild man, quick-witted, goofball, who's got the upper hand in every situation. We fully understand the power of the mask once a small-time yet vicious criminal, Dorian, played by Peter Green, 
comes into possession of it and turns into the ultimate evil, even taking on a much more devilish appearance than when Stanley has on the mask. While this is a flashy comic book style zoot suited fun adventure, there's no denying this movie is completely kind of weird. (laughs) Absurdity rules here, which is fine. And right along with the comedy is some serious darkness. Whenever the mask is worn, it takes on such a monstrous quality. In fact, Chuck Russell, director of Nightmare 3, Dream Warriors, and our episode 40 of the Blob remake, um, he was the director for this movie and lobbied pretty hard for Jim Carrey to get this role after seeing his stand-up comedy. And Russell, in my mind, is the perfect guy to have at the helm of the mask. It's hard to believe that there was a time when superhero movies weren't box office guarantees, and the mask was a gamble in 1994. The house that Freddy built, a.k.a. New Line Cinema, imagined this story to be a horror movie, but Chuck Russell felt that the violence in in the original comic, The Mask, um, wasn't going to work with audiences at the time, and was a huge reason for the tone of this film being the way it is. Had this been a horror film, even with the same comedy, The Mask wouldn't have had the same charm as it does. You know, there's oddness, comical violence, gun violence, and semi-terrifying faces that are donned whenever Carrie or Green sometimes, you know, they look pretty frightening. The one-liners and animation and cartoony special effects, dance sequences and songs balances it out in some way, and the mask is just all over the place. It's chaotic, but Russell never loses control and probably knew when to trust Carrie just to go with whatever was happening in the scene. And speaking of... Carrie's level of physicality in this movie is exhaustingly impressive. The man is able to have his body fully engaged while employing his emotional acting skills. The guy's always been a great actor, and it's part of the reason that roles like Ace and The Mask work. His believability in the midst of complete absurdity is 100% necessary for both of these movies. The Mask also marked the big screen debut of Cameron Diaz. She's captivating from moment one and works seamlessly well with Carrie. It's easy to see how she blew up in popularity immediately after this movie. Jim Dohan, who uh, is the lead detective tracking the mask, comedian Richard Jenny, plays uh, Stanley's best friend Amy Yazbek, is a greedy reporter, and all of these supporting cast of characters really help add a colorful background um, over over this entire movie. It's it's a rich and truly like metaphorical colorful world, but also very just it's a colorful movie. Just even their small roles add a lot to their limited time on screen. And dog lovers, I can't forget to tell you about Max the dog, who plays Stanley's pup Milo, the Jack Russell who sticks by his dad, breaks him out of jail, and may contribute to saving the day. And there is a lesson to be learned here. You know, we all wear a metaphorical mask in different situations in life, but the confidence always resides within us in order to get through every difficult time. The mask allows Stanley to see that he can break the constraints of his life and allow himself to not be a doormat all the time. And it is possible to get the girl in the end. There's also about 12% reality to the mask, but I appreciate the positivity that it slyly sends to the audience, um, even if it's through an unreal world. It sure was a real wild one to revisit, and uh, the big band uh, swing dancing, cha-cha dance sequences in this movie, just try to look away. Um, It's so much fun to watch. It's ridiculous. Um, But yeah, I I think that, I hope that this would play well for a kiddo audience. I don't know if it will. I think it would. 
but it's it was fun as an adult watching it. I'll say that. Yeah, it was kind of wild. I hadn't seen this movie in in since it came out. Probably not to get all like nostalgic, but this was the uh, when I was seventeen. It was like my second job working in the movie theater. This was the uh, movie that the first week I started. This movie was playing in the theater that I was working at, and I remember audiences just like just going crazy for this movie. When I rewatched it, it is wild. I mean, this movie is zany. I mean, it's just like so insane. Yeah, <laughs> and it really it is. It does have that. There was that specific time period in the '90s where. They were really trying to make comic book movies happen, you know, with a sort mm-hmm. of, and I felt like they're really trying to go for like a comic book look, like weird colors and vibrant, you know, yeah. And, yeah. and man, this movie really does have that look. It's, it's pretty wild. And I always forget that Chuck Russell did this movie. I always forget that he, you know, I, and I, I always think of Chuck Russell with Nightmare and the blob and then I forget that he made this movie, but then after watching, it's like, oh yeah, totally. Yeah. It's like very <laughs> Chuck Russell. Yeah, it's it's fun, but it's just it's got that level of weirdness that makes it so it doesn't get too dark. Exactly. But there's still an element of like fun, even when it does. Yeah. All right. I can't wait to hear you talk about Dumb and Dumber. This movie never gets old to me. So Dumb and Dumber was the third of the three films that Jim Carrey did that were hits in 1994. This one came out in December. When this movie came out, Jim Carrey, people knew Jim Carrey's face. They knew his name. What's interesting about this movie to me is that it is the first movie of those that that Jim Carrey did where he is not just the main person. You know, we've got Jeff Daniels and they're working as like a comedy duo. And also too, this isn't so much about Jim Carrey's like physical acting this movie was a lot more situational um it's kind of funny because it's almost identical in some ways in plot taste ventura with the side subplot of this kidnapping scheme like there's a a, you know this woman's husband's been kidnapped and she's being forced to give these kidnappers five five million dollars um but she jim carrey's him and and Jeff Daniels play Harry and Lloyd and they're basically dumb and dumber. They're just total buffoons, just total idiots. And he is a limo driver. He he thinks that he's in love with her after only seeing her for like three minutes in a in a scene where we already are starting to see Jim Carrey's like sincerity that he can bring on screen and that can be equally funny because the way he lusts after her and like wants to give her a hug is, is he's so sincere, but it's just so cringy, but that's where the humor comes from. And I think you see a lot of that sincerity in Jim Carrey uh, and dumb and dumber. And I think that's where a lot of the humor comes from, which I think is a nice, it was this, this movie was a nice uh, change of pace from what we had seen in the last two movies. I think if Jim Carrey annoyed you in Ace Ventura, you might, he might start to grow on you in dumb and dumber. And though it's similar in Ace Ventura with the kidnapping, they kind of play those parts of the movie really goofy. They're not really done in like a real serious, realistic way, the way they are in Ace Ventura. And I think that's a lot to do with the Farley brothers. This was their first movie. You know, they've gone on to make, you know, so many big comedies that that people know even uh, have gone on to, to win an Oscar. But this being their first movie, I think the non-stuff with Jim Carrey and Jeff Daniels is a little lacking. You know, it's not as funny and you're kind of, you know, you're just trying to get kind of get through the story. Uh, but ultimately, the, this movie is them 
trying to track her down and it's essentially a road movie and it's a buddy comedy road movie and that point in the movie them traveling together and kind of getting on each other's nerves and having to trust each other there's just one good comedy bit after another and there's a lot of toilet humor a lot of gross out humor that the Farleys are known for and some of that is really funny some of it, it for me uh, not my not my favorite type of comedy. Those bits aren't as as hilarious to me as is a lot of the other gags that go on in the movie. One particular funny scene is involves like a blind kid and a dead parakeet. Uh, it's just one of those movies that uh, it kind of hits you scene after scene, and just the absurdity of how stupid these guys are. Um, you know them thinking their life sucks. Uh, one example. They come home and they just feel all defeated because they both got fired from their jobs from being idiots. And, you know, they get home and, you know, they want to get some beer. And, you know, it's just like it, it starts off like two scenes where two guys are like, oh, man, you know, this sucks where our lives are going downhill. And, you know, they get out of the car and and uh, Jim Carrey's just like, ah, there's no jobs in this town, period, you know, and. <laughs> Jeff Daniels is like, yeah, if you want to work 40 hours a week, you know, and it's just, and then that's when it hits you, the humor hits you. You're just like, oh God, you know, you're just kind of shaking your head, but laughing at the same time. Dumb and Dumber, I think is a movie that still holds up. Um, certainly when you have a Farley, Farley Brothers movie, uh, there is going to be things that are offensive, uh, that were offensive then they're offensive now. And, uh, but overall it is, it's a really funny movie. I think from start to finish, you know, there, it doesn't really slow down. And I think also has like a, a really hysterical ending as well. I was just going to say the ending is probably one of my most favorite things about the movie because it stays so true to how dumb Harry and Lloyd are. I love dumb and dumber. <laughs> well, those are Carrie picks of the week. Um, dumb and dumber and the mask. Here's your Murray moment. Because I rarely wear underwear, and when I do, it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. You're gonna come and shake my monkey tree again? Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even chill. Okay, this is so scrumptious. Is this hand shot? The flowing robes embrace all striking. That was fun. So this Murray moment really sent me down a rabbit hole of investigation. All right. It's not 1994 related, um, but, you know, Ace Ventura deals a great deal with football and the Super Bowl. So we're not going for the Super Bowl of 2020. No, no, no. We're going to dial it back a little bit further and we're going to go to 1976 and Super Bowl 10 between the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Dallas Cowboys. A long time ago, Billy, along with a ton of other virtually unknown names at the time, were a part of the first guerrilla investigative journalism team called Top Value Television, or TVTV. There were only three networks back in those days, and none had ever attempted the style of reporting that TVTV was doing. There were no rules. They produced anything that they were interested in, like going into a crowd right up front in your face during a presidential debate or going behind the scenes of the Oscars in ways I can't even believe. And I dare say could probably not happen today, any of this that they've done. After a few of these re-envisionings of the way news or event reporting was covered, 
TV TV headed to Super Bowl X and decided to include some comedian friends. Billy Murray was part of this crew. This deep cut totally blows me away. A few times in my research, I've stumbled across photos of Billy holding some sound equipment, not in front of the camera, but I never knew what it was. It was TV TV. The Super Bowl special is still unique today. I mean, they gave football players porta pack camera kits and just told them to film themselves in their hotel rooms or in their locker room. It's legit behind-the-scenes footage of players speaking and behaving very frankly, players' wives interviewed about their lives in the future ahead, players talking about their various injuries and repercussions of, just straight up, and everyone is in short shorts and tight shirts or v-necks or velour one-piece or something equally as sexy, but laid-back 70s style. This, along with so much more, made up this event special, but it also marked the television debut of a baby-faced Billy and Christopher Guest covering the CBS Touch football game with CBS sports reporters and former footballers facing off in Super Bowl Nine and a half. Of course, Super Bowl nine and a half. Chris Guest introduces and sets the scene. Billy takes charge as the announcer, narrating each play of the game in a very sportscastery voice. And his improv journalist nature fit perfectly in with everything TV TV stood for at the time, asking absolutely anything that would come to mind, not taking no for an answer, and just pressing forward. Probably one of the more memorable moments of this segment is Billy and well-known sportscaster Phyllis George talking and Billy asking her in a bit of a leading way which football player would be her dream date. And being a woman in a man's world, Phyllis George straight up says, you know, I find that question a little sexist, don't you think? Billy tries to make up for it, but there's obviously a little rub here. The segment continues on with Billy interviewing CBS sportscasters and retired players after the game. If for nothing else, looking at how fashion, accepted behaviors, and manners of speaking on a historical level, this entire documentary is worth seeking out. But the opening segment, which is Billy and Brian Doyle Murray, is the most priceless for me. Here I thought I'd seen the earliest recorded like non-Second City version of Billy's honker character, predating Caddyshack's Carl Spackler, SNL's Light from Mardi Gras, or the various incarnations of this character over the years. But here, the honker character is a Cowboys superfan who's broken into the stadium before the Super Bowl. Brian looks to be some type of official who's gingerly trying to escort Billy out. The entire segment looks 95% improv, if not everything. <laughs> But the two Murray brothers make this five-minute scene of nonsense completely hilarious. Even when random folks show up, and this looks fairly unplanned, I think, they start heckling Billy. Even this doesn't deter the Murray brothers. He's a mustached, shoeless, blue cowboy hat and stolen ABC network jacket wearing Billy, saying he's just left his press pass back in his sleeping bag. He says, you know, I'm just um, I'm just helping out ABC, parking cars, stuff like that. That's I'm official. That's why I'm here. It's some real ridiculous improv and wonderful for any person who adores the dude's roots. Also, I got to make mention that Billy's half-opened white button-up shirt is a real great look um, of the time. Like that 70s Billy with an easygoing, ready-for-anything style is truly a sight to behold. And the coolly composed, sunglass-covered, in-control Brian really provides some uh, pure comedy gold. And even though the honker character isn't the sexiest, there's something so captivating about the Murray brothers making magic on screen together. Like I said, I'm fairly certain that this was the TV debut of Chris, Guest, and Billy. I'm not sure if it was for Brian. 
And just another quick name drop here. Harold Ramis was involved with TVTV on this production crew for Super Bowl X. And Billy has an editing credit on this particular special and was on the production crew for various other TVTV documentary pieces. I'm sure, I hope anyway, I'm going to have other TVTV moments that come up in these Murray moments. Get crafty in your Google researching and you should be able to find clips um, or this entire special out there. If you're interested in this entity that was once TVTV, there's a documentary called TVTV Video Revolutionaries. It was really eye-opening. It was awesome. Um, highly suggest seeking it out. Man, you went really deep for that one. That was like deep in the vaults. <laughs> I did. Um, yeah, this the Super Bowl Ten segment, if you're a football lover, it's, it's really worth checking out. Like, not for anything that's, you know, scandalous or anything like that. It's just real, legit, and uh, raw honesty, really. I've never even heard of it, but then again, I don't even understand how football works now. <laughs> I'm not I'm not the biggest football fan either, but um, I, I don't even think you needed to for this. But, man, I loved learning about TVTV, and there, there's a lot of history there. Well, thanks for that Murray moment. Of course. Well, we're about to wind things down here. Did you have any final thoughts on uh, Pet Detective? Other than I think it's worthy of noting how much of a cultural impact I think this movie had. Maybe maybe it was just on kids of the day, but I know that my 12-year-old self, like I, I was trying to be a mini Jim Carrey. You know, I was doing the lines. I was doing the scenes to an annoying degree, I'm sure, and not as well i'm very positive but there are so many quotes and and so many moments i feel like from this scene that um are still kind of lingering around in uh at least american lingo like i mean i don't know where should i even start with this warning assholes are closer than they appear like how do you not every time i look in my car and i see that in the mirror like i think of that scene or if I'm not back in five minutes, just wait longer. I know I've said that within the past, like, couple months. Yeah, didn't Shady X say Jim Carrey had a knack for, like, he, I mean, he was trying to introduce things into vernacular. Like, he was, yeah. he was really, you know, not, and he said, they didn't always stick. But he said that every kid was saying, like, all righty then for, like, the next three years. All righty then is, I mean, I, I feel like people say that now, or when they do say it, they don't even know what it's from, yeah. you know. Unless, unless they obviously intentionally do. But I have to say, he did a great job. And even the ones that didn't work that he was trying for um, doesn't even matter because there were so many that came out of this movie that did work. Saddlebags. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, what about you? What's your final thought? Uh, my final thought, it's not so much. I guess it's my final thought because we're about to finish this episode. But I, I, wanted to men- I meant to mention it earlier when we were talking about Shady Act directing and he used the same cinematographer for pretty much all his movies who was Julio Macat who prior to Ace Ventura had done shot both of the Home Alone movies and on Netflix the reason why it was popped into my head too is because on Netflix there's a how there's a making of some of these movies from the 80s and 90s and one of the episodes was on Home Alone and they're in that Home Alone making of they're interviewing the director of photography, Julio Macat, and that. And he said he was pretty new and he was unsure of himself. So he was worried about getting so much coverage. So he always had an extra camera running, which he called his bonus camera. 
but he brought that to every movie and Tom Shadyac said that bonus camera worked really well because Jim Carrey was, you know, do so much improv, you know, there'd be this extra camera and sometimes they would go to that, you know, so they'd have a good cutaway or something of, you know, or if the main camera, if Jim was moving around, it, the other camera would catch him. So I, I just thought that was, I meant to mention it earlier when we were talking about them all working together, but, um, but that, yeah, that was, uh, Julio Cadat. He ended up using him for pretty much all the movies that he shot, uh, especially Liar Liar, Nutty Professor and Bruce Almighty. It really says something when you stick with the same cinematographer or stick yeah. with the same anybody that's such a like important part to a production. And that guy in particular, yeah, um, he, he knows how to make comedy work visually. Well. Does that wrap it up on Ace, I guess? Uh, that wraps it up on Ace. You know, you said in the beginning, this is like really what I needed to turn my mood around because, uh, you know, this <laughs> pandemic has been going. There's just everything going on in the world it was like i needed like two weeks of of watching some some jim carrey so uh if you're if you're feeling down and jim carrey is uh the cure for you i suggest going on a a jim carrey marathon on like a sunday afternoon or or whenever if you're not working right now do it on the monday you know do it on a (laughs) tuesday do it on any day so coming up next we are dipping into you know we've done all these movies from 80s and 90s but we're it's the first time we're dipping into the year 2000 so crazy i know and uh, but we we both really love the movie almost famous it's coming up on its 20th anniversary so we thought you know what let's let's do a let's do an older movie for what we do on this podcast and by older 20 years old but I, I think that the movie, you know, I'm, I'm excited to talk about it. I already did like a first uh, kind of rewatch. And it, yeah, it's, I, I love that movie. It's so much fun, so much to talk about with that. So that's coming up next episode, Almost Famous. If you haven't uh, already, please do follow us on social media. You can find us on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, on YouTube. You know, a lot of people have commented and told us, uh, why can't we hear your old episodes? I I don't understand it. We're trying to figure out what's going on, if it's our host or what. But uh, some of the platforms run, they keep cutting off our old episodes. You know, it only showed the last 15 episodes that we've done, the most recent ones. If you're hankering to hear some old episodes from us, you can go to our website. Everything's archived there. Thank you, Lindsay, for for taking the time to put all that there and making it available at don'tpushpausepodcast.com. We have everything from our very first introduction episode, where we probably sounded like really nervous and had no idea what we were doing, (laughs) to the most recent episode that you're listening to right now. And as well as tons of merch, we've got Don't Push Pause koozies, Don't Push Pause strollers, Don't Push Pause, you know, sunscreen, anything that you can think of. We've just slapped our, you know, logo and name on it and, and selling it for a, for a little <laughs> bit more than you could buy something like that in store to raise money for the podcast. We also have movie posters on there that have nothing to do with our podcast, just like random posters that we found in the closet that might be worth a couple bucks uh, we've got these like handcrafted frankenstein made vhs box things just look at the pictures on there check it out um everything is priced to sell so please support us uh, thank you if you're already listening if you're a new uh, listener we hope you enjoyed this first episode that you listened to please stay with us 
Until next time, I'm Justin Johnson. And I'm Lindsay Reber. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you, guys. Thank you.